0: Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7. This evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, 2 Corinthians uh, 7 and 8. Appreciate Jimmy coming down from Breckenridge uh, to teach last Wednesday night. Hope that you enjoyed him sharing the word, and Pastor Sean teaching over the weekend, and I think the message that we have uh, tonight really comes in close behind of what he shared with us uh, on, the, on the weekend, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and God, we want to be worshipers. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know that you seek those that worship you in that way. And Father, we just ask that you uh, would bless Billy and Laura as they prepare to load up in the U-Haul and drive out here a week from now, a big change, uh, going from the East Coast to here in Colorado, and we pray that you'd bless them, that you'd provide for them, minister to them, and just prepare our hearts for what you have for us in this new season. And as we go into the week of Thanksgiving, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, that we could be a thankful people, that we could reach out to family and friends and those around us. And tonight, as we study your word, as we look at what you've done for us and our response to it, we pray that you'd minister to our hearts. Would you breathe in us through the power of the Holy Spirit? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll actually look at verse 9 of chapter 8, turn over with me to verse 9 of chapter 8. It's our theme verse for these two chapters. So verse 9 of chapter 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you through his poverty might become rich. That phrase, for your sakes. It was because of Christ's love for you that he left his deity that came in humanity so that we could be rich in Christ Jesus. Everything in these two chapters surrounds this truth of what Christ has done for us. Because of his kindness, we respond in repentance. Because of his kindness in the way that he's given to us, then we move in being a person that's willing to give and to share with others. That's the two themes of these two chapters, that godly sorrow producing repentance, in chapter seven, and then chapter eight, being willing to give to those who are in need, especially believers. But it's centered around what Christ has done, what he has done for us, for your sakes. So let's look at verse one of chapter seven. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. We actually covered that two weeks ago. But for a quick review, in response to who God is and his call to be holy, God wants us, based on his promises, based on the fact that we're loved by the Lord, To cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, from all sin of the flesh and the spirit, and then growing, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's the challenge for the church of Corinth, and that's the challenge for us as well. Notice this is written to believers. This isn't repentance for salvation, They have salvation in the Lord. They've already turned from their sin to receive the grace of God. But as a believer, there's times where we get to that place of compromise. There's times where we just get stuck. We're not growing. We're at that place of we're just kind of coasting or we're on a plateau. And there's a need for us to evaluate. There's a need for repentance in our lives. And what's unique for this particular church at this time is there was a need for repentance as a group. There was things that they needed to to own as a church there in Corinth to get right with the Lord, and that's what Paul is addressing, and that's what he's challenging him with. In verse 2, open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. We don't have all the details, but for some reason, there's a division between Paul and the church of Corinth. They're having a difficult time receiving from him. It's possible because Paul wrote such a strong letter in 1 Corinthians, dealing with sexual sin in the church, dealing with disorder. But there seems to be rumors about the Apostle Paul. You can't really trust this guy, he's a bit heavy handed, he likes to drop the hammer, those kinds of things. And they had put up a wall of resistance to Paul that Paul's trying to overcome. And he's trying to say, Would you stop and would you open up your heart to us again? Would you receive from us? And you know, with learning and receiving, the most important thing is your heart condition. Is there somebody in your life that you've stopped learning from, that you've stopped receiving from, because for some reason you've closed your heart off to them? Maybe it was a Paul like figure in your life, or a close friend, a Barnabas. Maybe it's even someone who serves inside of this church. And at one point, they were your mentor. At one point, they invested in your life. And there was not a reason for you to stop receiving for them, but the enemy got the best of the situation. And we've closed ourselves off. We're no longer open to receiving them. And the Holy Spirit's saying, open up your heart to them again. Be willing to receive from them again. And that's what what Paul's addressing with the church of Corinth. Verse three, I do not say this to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul almost seems a little bit gun shy. Every time he's got to explain himself a little bit. If you've been studying this letter with us, he's he's like, I'm not saying this to beat you guys up. I'm not saying this to, to be hard on you. I don't want to condemn you. I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again. You're in our hearts, even to the point of death. Even if I had to die for you and to, to live together. In verse four, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. So Paul's saying, man, I haven't held anything back. I think that's true love. That's That's love for another believer. Don't hold anything back. If there's things that need to be challenged, if there's truth that needs to be brought in love, Speak it. Say it. And Paul was able to say, I was bold towards you in speech, but I'm also boasting on your behalf. I'm also thankful for the fruit that has come in your life. One of the mysteries about Paul is he says, I'm filled with comfort, and he has joy and tribulation. He opens up in this letter about how difficult ministry was for him, how hard life was for him, but yet he'd found comfort in the Lord. He'd found joy in the Lord. There's a lot of work to be done to get to that place of the tribulation in our lives to be able to say I'm taking joy in this. It can be the little annoyances in life from the headlight going out in the car to getting tires. Who likes to spend money on tires? They're essential, but you you never enjoy handing that money over to Discount Tire or Big O Tires or all of those things. Standing in a long line at at Costco can be hard to find joy in those things. Or the bigger trials of life, the financial pressures, the difficulties with health, the, the difficulties with sin, and the pain that it brings to really press in and to know that the Lord's with us, that he's on the throne, that joy is accessible in the midst of the trials of life. And Paul says, I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation, Verse 5, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Paul mentions twice about his difficulties in Macedonia. We don't know exactly what he's referring to. We can guess and we can estimate, but we don't know for sure. The church of Corinth knew the trials in Macedonia. And Paul says, my body had no rest. Ever had those seasons? Man, I get extremely grumpy when I don't have rest. I remember asking my mom almost 15 years ago now, right before I got married, and said, mom, you know me really well. What would your advice be to me as I'm getting married? And she looked at me and said, make sure you get your sleep, because you're a real bear when you don't sleep, you know, and she's right. Kind of surprised me that that's the advice that she would give to me, but it has proven proven well. Paul says, my body had no rest. Whatever was going, it was affecting him to the place where he wasn't getting sleep. Then everywhere he looked, there was trouble on every side. Outside, there were conflicts, but then inside, there were fears. Is that how you picture the Apostle Paul? I don't picture him that way. But he opens up in this letter that he had real fears. We look at the people of Scripture, and they were human. They're made of the same material that we are, have the same challenges as we are. And if we're pressed on every side, conflicts, there would probably be fear in our hearts. Paul had to deal with all these things in order to have joy. In verse 6, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. A great truth about God, that he comforts, the downcast. Jesus said that blessed are the mourn, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not something that you would put down is that I'm blessed if I mourn, but Jesus says you are blessed if you mourn because you're going to experience the comfort of God, the comfort of Jesus Christ, and God comforts the downcast. How did he comfort Paul in this situation? By the sending of Titus. God comforts us through his people. You may want to write that down, pray it through. God comforts us through his people. God comforts in a variety of ways, but sometimes he's going to comfort through his body, through his hands, through his feet. And this is why it's important to be in relationship with other believers. Paul wasn't a lone island as he served the Lord. He had other men that were close to him. Titus was a friend, and when he sees Titus, and Titus gives him this news of the church of Corinth, it comforts his heart. Look for the Titus in your life. Who brings you bread? Who brings your soul bread? We might be saying, I'm so isolated. No one can get through that isolation to to care for my soul. And Paul wasn't that way. He was able to, to receive from Titus to be comforted by the coming of Titus. In verse seven, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of our earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Titus had good news. What was his news? Oh, the church of Corinth, they're receiving from you. The the church of Corinth, they love you. They're responding to the things that, that you were writing. And it's weighing on Paul's heart this fractured, severed relationship with the church of Corinth that God had used him to plant. Could you imagine? Here he's planted this church. They're at odds with one another. There's a a wall there, and now he gets news that the church of Corinth is receiving him once again. Verse 8, but even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. What is all of this? Is Paul schizophrenic? It's the emotion of confrontation, isn't it? There's always emotion with confrontation if you do it right, if your heart's invested. If you don't care, there's no emotion that's involved. You don't lose any sleep over it. But if you really love the person that you're confronting— or receiving confrontation from, there's emotion involved. And Paul's saying, I'm really not sorry I wrote all those hard things. I'm really not sorry that I addressed those things, but I did regret it. It's kind of like when you discipline your children. Does anybody enjoy disciplining, blending your children? If you do, there's probably something wrong with you. You know, you you don't really want to do it. I I don't want to have to bring the consequences but at the same time, you know you have to. You know that that's your job. If you really love them, you're gonna love them enough to bring them godly consequences. So, so in one way, you don't regret it, but in another way, you do regret it, and you wish you didn't have to, and that's the heart of the apostle Paul. And we look at verse nine, and we get into the heart of this, of this chapter and of this letter. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a progression, there's a building that's taking place here. Think of how a house that's being constructed, it's got a foundation, then it's framed. After it's framed and in insulation and drywall and a roof, there's a progression. And the first thing that happens in this passage that took place for the church of Corinth is there was sorrow. That's the foundation of repentance. When you feel it, again, as the child of God, as believers, when there's an aspect of our lives that all of a sudden it hits us, there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit and there's sorrow that sinks in. Repentance is a huge theme throughout Scripture, when we look at it in regards to salvation, of coming to know Christ as our Savior, repentance means to change your direction and to change your mind. Maybe you're heading south on academy and you realize that you've gone a little too far. You've passed the business that you wanted to go visit. So what do you do? You change your mind. You change your direction. You do a U-turn and now you're headed north on, on academy. You're, you're headed up to a, monument. You're headed up to Castle Rock, and you realize, who, who in the right mind would want to go towards Denver? That's not a good idea. There's way too much traffic up there. I'm going to do a U-turn. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to get, get back to the promised land, Colorado Springs, right? You, you change your mind, and you, you change your, your direction. So when we come to know Christ as our Savior, we repent and believe. We change our mind about Christ, We come to that place of believing that he's God, that he died for our sins and rose again. We we turn away from our sin and ask for Christ's forgiveness and that's why repentance is important in salvation but repentance is not a work for salvation. It's not something that we do to earn or deserve salvation, it's evidence of the fact that we're ready to be saved. Does that make sense? We're now in a condition where we can receive the grace of God. That's repentance resulting in salvation. Repentance resulting in saving faith. But now we're dealing with repentance in the life of a believer. Repentance in the life of a church. It's not that you've lost your salvation. It's not that the church of Corinth has stopped being believers. If you look at verse one, remember it said, beloved, they're, they're the loved of God. They're the sons and daughters of God, But And somewhere in their hearts and their lives, sin has entered in, compromises has entered in, and Paul needed to challenge them with this message of repentance and sorrow hit their hearts. Oh, they were heavy, they were convicted of the Holy Spirit. Whenever there's really been conviction over sin in my life, there has been those moments of sorrow. And it's with the Holy Spirit that's wrestling with my heart saying, Eric, you can't do that. You can't act like that. And he allows me to see the results of my actions, where those actions are hurting God's heart and hurting those, those that I love, and I feel it. And it cuts deep into my heart, and when that happens and when that sits in and it's genuine with the Lord, then that produces repentance. That produces that change of mind and the change of direction in the life of a believer. I'm gonna start thinking differently about this particular sin. Romans tells us that repentance comes from the kindness and goodness of God. When we see the kindness and goodness of God, it leads us to repentance. Wasn't that the case with salvation? Isn't that why you got saved? You probably realized how good God is and how gracious God is. And that continues in the life of a believer. this is what you did for me, Jesus? You left your riches, you became poor so so that I could become rich in Christ and it moves us to that place of repentance. So you have sorrow leading to repentance, and then notice in your text what happens once there's repentance from godly sorrow, it leads to salvation. We're not talking about getting saved again, your name being written in the Lamb's book of life, but what we're talking about is deliverance from a particular sin struggle. So here I am, godly sorrow sets in, repentance, change of mind, change of direction, And then there's salvation. It leads to salvation. And as I was praying this afternoon, this is what I believe that God's message is for the church tonight. For us tonight as believers is that there's hope. There's hope that it's never too late to repent. That God always is in that place of looking for the broken and contrite in spirit. And you may be wrestling with a particular sin, and thinking, there's no hope for me to have deliverance. And God's saying, you know what? There can be deliverance, because Christ died for you. Christ rose again, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. Maybe it's anger, and you're like, I don't even think I could ever change. Well, what, what does the scripture say? It says, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. It's this process that the Lord brings us through. You allow the godly sorrow to take place. You allow the repentance to take place. Change your mind, change your direction, take the actions, and allow the Lord to bring the salvation. Allow the Lord to bring the deliverance in your heart and your life. It's never too late to get to that place of repentance. This isn't something that I think we ever get down in our Christian life with the Lord. We never get to a place where 2 Corinthians chapter 7 never applies to us anymore. There's no longer any need for repentance. There's no longer any need for godly sorrow in my life. Until we go home to be with the Lord, the Holy Spirit at times is going to continue to prick us. It's going to continue to hit our hearts and say, "Okay, I'm ready to deal with this. It's time. It's time to deal with this." And allow the Holy Spirit to work that in your life. But there's something else in these verses. What is it? Take a look at it. Take a look at these verses 9 and 10. What's the other thing that's here? We've got godly sorrow, but we also have worldly sorrow. Do you know that unbelievers and the world is sorry about sin? They're sorry about it. Sorry all day long. And there's guilt and there's shame and there's condemnation and they wanna change, but what does it do? It leads to death because Christ isn't in the equation. There's sorrow there, but there's no repentance. There's I'm sorry, but never returning to Christ, never turning to the Lord, and then the result is death. Satan loves that kind of sorrow. He loves when someone's in that place of condemnation, and he beats them up, and he beats them up, and he beats them up, and it digs this deeper and deeper hole. I wanna illustrate this for just a few minutes. We see these two responses going parallel throughout scripture. One of them is Saul. Saul had worldly sorrow. As we've been studying his life, on Saturdays and Sundays, you'll notice that when he compromised, he was always sorry. He would even say words like, I've sinned, I've transgressed, and it sounded really good. But it was never followed up with actions of repentance, changing his mind, changing his direction, and ultimately, it led to death, didn't it? The first time that he was caught in sin, in 1 Samuel 13, who did he blame it on? Samuel, Samuel, you were late. What did Saul do? He offered up the offering that only the priest was to do. He did the burnt offering. And his response was, Well, Samuel, if you had been on time, I wouldn't have had to do this. The people were scattered. That's not repentance. But he was sorry. The next time he was told to, to wipe out Agag, King Agag, but he didn't. And what did he do? Once again, all he wanted to do was save face. Samuel, why don't you come back with me and worship with the elders? He didn't want the elders of Israel to see his sin. He was sorry in those texts. He said, I'm sorry, but it was a worldly sorrow and it ultimately led to death. But we'll read and we'll study and we'll continue into 2 Samuel. We'll find that David sinned as well. And in some ways, you could argue that David's sin was greater than Saul's. David commits adultery. He then follows it up with murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He goes a whole year with hiding his sin, covering it in his tracks, thinking, "I've gotten away with this." The prophet Nathan confronts him, tells him this little story, lays it down to him in a nice little wrap, and here it is: David is convicted by the Holy Spirit, and there's Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. And he responds to it, and David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And there's actions of repentance following the godly sorrow. So Saul had worldly sorrow, and David had godly sorrow leading to repentance. We don't see David walking in sexual sin again in his life. And that's hope for us as believers that there can be godly sorrow leading to repentance, leading to salvation, leading to transformation and life change. We go into the New Testament. Maybe sin's only a part of the Old Testament. Wouldn't that be nice? That once Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that nobody sinned anymore. And once you walked into the door of a church and gave your life to Christ, you never struggle with sin. Well, we find Peter, don't we? Struggling with sin. Peter does what he thought he would never do. He's so confident. He says, even if these deny you, I will never deny you. I am ready to die for you. He follows up his words with actions. Jesus is getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter's got a sword. He decides to to swing it in defense of Jesus Christ, and he lops off the high priest's servant's ear. I think that Peter was aiming for his head and missed and only got the ear. Remember, he's a fisherman with a sword. Don't give a fisherman a, a sword. Jesus picks up the ear that's laying on the ground and puts it back on and heals him as he's being arrested. Peter then follows from a distance and he's watching the trial of Christ and he's warming himself by the fire. Apparently, if you're from Galilee, you have an accent kind of like if you're from Texas. You've got an accent. You can try to hide it, but you have an accent. And if you're from northern Israel, from Galilee, you've got an accent. They say, aren't you from Galilee? Aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus Christ? And he denied the Lord three times. Three times he denied the Lord even to the point of cursing, saying that he never knew the Lord. Then the rooster begins to crow as the sun begins to come up and Jesus looks at Peter. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And sorrow hits the heart and life of Peter. Jesus went and died for Peter's sin. Jesus has died for for our sin. Peter goes back to fishing, disobedience, catches nothing. Jesus Cooks him breakfast. Do you know how much grace that is? You'd think at that moment that Jesus would be like getting out the holy spanking. You know what I'm saying? Like, Peter, like, what are you doing going back to fishing? Hey, knucklehead, you didn't catch anything. I could have told you that before you started. Why don't you get your act together? It's about time. Jesus just quietly is cooking breakfast right there on the Sea of Galilee. Looks more like an ocean. It's such a large lake. Calls out to the guys, have you caught anything? No, cast your net on the other side. The scripture tells us they caught 153 fish. Why does God say 153 fish? Because John was a fisherman, and fishermen record their catch, right? Yeah, we caught 153 fish. At that moment, John realizes that it's the Lord, and he tells Peter, it's the Lord. Can I tell you, you need those kind of friends? when you're in sin, they say, hey, Eric, it's the Lord. Get your eyes back on the Lord. Get your eyes back on Jesus. He died for you. He rose again. What you're looking for is at the feet of Jesus. And what makes Peter and David so special is not that they never sinned, but it's how they responded when they did sin. And Peter jumps into the water, and he swims to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. And there's that temptation when we've sinned to run away from the Lord and Peter runs to the Lord and he experiences godly sorrow that led to repentance, that led to salvation. And Jesus had a question for him. He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, really, do you love me? Yeah, I just told you, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Why did Jesus ask three times? Because Peter had denied the Lord three times. Do you think it hit him? On that third time, oh, yeah. Oh, I deny the Lord three times. I can't believe I did that. Lord, I love you. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, be my first pastor. Take care of my sheep. Take care of my people. Godly sorrow leading to repentance. But there's another disciple. His name's Judas. He denies the Lord in even a greater way. He betrays him. He leads the men to arrest Jesus Christ. They give the money to Judas, and Judas is sorry for what he did. We see that remorse that's over him because of what he did. But he never repents, he never comes back to the Lord, and he hung himself. That's worldly sorrow leading to death. There's a difference here, church, between condemnation and conviction. That's what I want you to see. Judas had condemnation, Peter experienced conviction. The Holy Spirit is going to come and want us to experience the sorrow over our sin, the weight of our sin. But if it pushes us away from Jesus Christ, it's moved from conviction to condemnation. And the enemy is right there saying, Jesus will never forgive you. Jesus can't cleanse you. Jesus can't change you. There's no hope for you. God's done with you. It's time for you to go into retirement. He's done. You're done. And that's not... God's heart at all. God's always showing sin for the purpose of confession and repentance so that we can come back to the Lord and God can transform and change our life. So, what's the Holy Spirit doing in you right now? I'm sure that there's some that this is the perfect message for us tonight that the Holy Spirit's been wrestling with us. There's something in our hearts, something in our lives. And right now, you're going, well, you know what? I've been looking around the room and I'm doing better than most of the people in here, so. Holy Spirit, back off, you know. I'm here on a Wednesday night. It's cold and windy. My kids only wanted to come to youth group in Iwana, but I'm here, you know. It's really easy to put ourselves on a scale and think, well, I don't have to respond to that, but the Holy Spirit's wrestling with your heart. The Holy Spirit's wrestling with my heart, and we respond in repentance, and the Lord produces that salvation in our hearts and in our lives. So let's go on into Verse 11. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Paul's describing the fruits of repentance. He gives us quite a list there. But basically he's saying to the church of Corinth, he's saying, guys, you did it. I challenged you. I challenged you with this letter. You repented, and it was seen in your actions. It's called the fruits of repentance. This hit me. When was the last time that we complimented somebody for the repentance that we saw in their life? A lot of times we're quick to give the challenge, and we should if it's led by the Lord but then when there's fruit and they respond to the message, are we paying attention and we come alongside of them and we go, wow, I really see the fruit of repentance in your life. I really see that you've changed. I've really seen that you've allowed Christ to change you and that's what Paul's doing here in verse 11. He's saying, guys, I'm so encouraged by the repentance that I see in your life. It's never too late. It wasn't too late for the church of Corinth. It's not too late for us. In verse 12, therefore, although I, I wrote to you, I do not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul's saying there's one reason I wrote that hard letter to you. It's because I was responsible before God to care for you as your pastor. And I wanted you to see that care. I wanted you to see that I love you. Why do we have that difficult conversation with brothers and sisters in Christ? Because we care for one another and we're accountable to the Lord. Verse 13, therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort and we received exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything, I've boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we've spoke all these things to you in truth, even so, our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So you can see what this meant to the Apostle Paul when he saw the repentance in the church of Corinth. So chapters eight and nine, we're just gonna look at chapter eight. Paul now brings up this issue of the church of Corinth being a giving church and giving to the church in Jerusalem that was in need. There was famine in Jerusalem So Paul went to the Gentile churches and he said, let's take an offering, let's take a love offering, a a gift, and let's go take it to the Jewish church down in Jerusalem. Could you imagine how powerful that would be with such a division between the Jews and the Gentiles, that the Gentile church would be giving to the Jewish church? So verse 8, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches Of Macedonia. It's interesting in this chapter when Paul describes giving, he uses the word grace: unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. And he's connecting the way that God's given to us, then we're to give to one another. And he's so saying, so so look at the gifts that have been given by the Church of Macedonia. Macedonia is modern-day Greece, it's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, churches that Paul was involved in that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So Paul's saying, here we have these churches in Macedonia, they're very poor financially, but they have great joy. A lot of affliction, but great joy. A lot of poverty, but they gave with liberality. And this has been my experience as I've had the opportunity to to go to some other countries and see the body of Christ, that a lot of the countries where they don't have anything financially, they are so willing to give. Kent and Becca, who have been over in Uganda, and Steve and Gale doing some training as they're looking to to live there long term. Uh, Kent and Becca come back here next week and and they'll be back here for, for a couple of months, but as they've been in Uganda, I'm sure they've experienced this. I remember being in Uganda And going to a family that has their hut and they welcome you in for a meal and they have hardly anything, but they insist on giving you this amazing meal and it's the most humbling thing I've ever experienced. I think the best cup of tea I've ever had is in Uganda. I was teaching at a little pastor's conference with Kent and they said, Eric, they've made some tea for you, you know, outside and the ladies in the church had made some some tea uh, for me and the women in Uganda are the heroes of that society, which is in the case in most societies, but it's multiplied there. A lot of the men are complete deadbeats and it's the women that keep things going, keep caring for the children and the women do all the work while the men sit around and do nothing. I know these ladies had worked so hard. They got up so early in the day. They'd worked so hard for this cup of tea and here I am sitting on this log in Uganda drinking this tea and it was really a gift of love that they'd extended to me. And on my taste buds, it wasn't the best cup of tea that I ever had. But because of the heart that it was given, it overwhelmed me tremendously. And that's what Paul's saying here, saying the church of Macedonia, and it was even recorded in history, the poverty, because the Roman Empire had come through and devastated them. So it was very real, their poverty, but yet they chose to give out of their poverty. And so affliction and joy, poverty and giving, a lot of times are very linked together. Hear me on this real quickly in this area of missions. And this is a philosophy for us in missions. We don't go and do international missions because we've got everything figured out and we're gonna go fix the church in Uganda. Do you realize that? We didn't didn't go down to Mexico to go plant a church in Mexico because we've got it all figured out and they they needed us. It's a two-way street. Our church is being impacted by Calvary Chapel Chihuahua. We're learning things from them. They're contributing things to our soul and our walk with the Lord. The believers in Uganda, if you go to Uganda on this mission trip, which pray about going, is don't go with this idea that I'm just gonna be a giver, that I've got it all figured out and I'm, I'm gonna go and, and bless them. Yes, you're gonna go and be a giver, but we're also gonna be receivers because that's the body of Christ, amen? We're giving, but we're also re- receiving and there's so much to learn from these other countries and the body of Christ as a whole. So verse three, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So they were giving even beyond their ability, ability, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. So they can't wait to give. They're begging Paul, please, can we send an offering to the church in Jerusalem? Not only are they wanting to give their financial gift, but they're desiring fellowship. They're willing to give themselves. They're willing to give relationship. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now I'm sure that there's some of you that are really turned off by this point in the message and you're going, hey, here comes another church talking about giving and I'm just gonna tune this out and I don't really have the money or the time to be able to give and that's a legalistic trip that's been thrown on me. Well, first hear me out on this. Two things. One, we don't take an offering here. Have you noticed that? We don't pass the plate. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But we don't want giving to be a stumbling block between you and the Lord. We want it to be between you and the Lord and be a cheerful giver. We don't want you to come in here and go, well, every week all they want is my money. And the second thing is we teach verse by verse through the Bible, we're going through Genesis through Revelation. So I didn't do a topical message on giving. This is where we are in the scriptures and God teaches giving. And notice that giving flows out of first your relationship with the Lord you've given yourself to the Lord. The church in Macedonia had given themselves to the Lord. So that included their finances, that included their homes, that included their resources, and their giving out of that relationship. And please hear me on this, God doesn't want your stuff, and God's not broke, amen? So God's not going up there, man, I I really need their stuff. No, he's about raising kids. And how does he raise kids? By calling us to give. And so giving comes out of our relationship with him. So verse eight, so we urge Titus that as he began, so he would also complete this grace, he's talking about giving, in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, and speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Abound in giving. So you think about all these areas, hopefully that you're abounding in your relationship with the Lord Also, abound in giving. This challenged me this afternoon as I was looking at this. My heart is either moving towards more selfishness and more greediness and trying to create more security for myself, or it's moving towards giving. And are we abounding in giving? And it's not just a monetary value, but it's a heart condition of abounding in giving. I think this is a great message for this time of year as we we go into the Christmas season. Maybe just pray about it. God, is there is there someone that you would want me to, to give to in a way that I wouldn't normally? Is there is there a need that you would present before me that I could really express the heart of, of Christmas in? In verse eight, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Man, Paul can really put the screws on you, can he? It's like, man, I wish you would have just given me a commandment. He says... Okay, guys, this isn't a commandment, but I am testing to see if you really love people. <laughs> okay, now that I feel really small, I'll, I'll give a gift. He gets to the real heart of it, which I'm thankful for in verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty, that through his poverty might become rich. This is truly the greatest gift. This is grace. Something we didn't deserve from Christ. What are his riches? Think about his riches for just a moment. He's God, the second member of the Trinity, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, one, having a great time, getting to create the universe. How much fun do you think that was for, for God to create the universe? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let there be light. Boom, there was light. Hey, that was pretty cool. Let there be fish. There's all these fish. throne, fellowship, unity, and Jesus leaves all of that. Just to leave would be so difficult, but then he takes on human flesh. The Word, the Creator, God, becomes man, becomes humanity. There's no real illustration that can describe how much Christ sacrificed in becoming a man. We do our best to try to put it into some kind of illustration that we would, would understand. But no downgrade for us could even come close to God becoming man. But it didn't stop there. God became man who was a servant. Jesus lived his life as a man, all God, all man, to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to wash feet, to die upon the cross. God became man who became a servant, who went upon the cross. Jesus said that he's like a serpent who was lifted up. That's how he described the cross. So the man, God becomes man, man becomes a servant, servant becomes a serpent, because he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what's symbolized in the serpent so that we could become the righteousness of God. In Psalms 22, it's a prophetic psalm of the crucifixion of Christ, It says this, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So we think of the riches of Christ, but then we think of the poverty of Christ. God becomes man who's a servant, who's crucified as a serpent, as a worm, saying I'm looked upon just as a worm. I'm despised. I'm the reproach. Why? So that we could have all riches. Do you know that you're rich tonight? And you're like, well, you don't know me very well. I'm not very rich at all. I would describe my life as one of debt, not of of riches. I'm talking about in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are rich. Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. How are you rich? Well, first you're justified. You're declared righteous by God. You're going to heaven. You're the daughter of God, you're the son of God. Eternal life, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you are rich. And when we understand what Christ has done for us, then giving doesn't become this huge burden. We're not, we're not arguing with God going, God, I don't understand why you want me to give. God, I don't understand why you want me to care for others. God, I don't know why you want me to be concerned for these believers that are hurting and don't have anything. And it really connects the dots for us. So let's finish up the chapter in verse 10. And in this, I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you have began and what you're desiring to do a year ago. They had desired to give, but now it's a year later, and they hadn't yet fulfilled that commitment. But now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was readiness to desire it, so there also may be completion of what you have. We're almost getting ready for another set of New Year's resolutions with January 1st but is there a set of things from 2014 going into 2015 that we haven't touched? So here's the question, okay? When it comes to giving, I'm talking about financial resources. Is there something that God put on your heart a year ago that you haven't done for some reason? You knew it was the Lord. It wasn't just that somebody was trying to guilt you into it or shame you into it. God had touched your heart. He'd made you aware of a need, but for some reason, you haven't followed through. That's the church of Corinth, and that's where they were at. In verse 12, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one doesn't have. So first we have a willing mind to give, and then our giving is in proportion to what you have. If God's blessed you a whole bunch, then give according to that. If you're in a season of lack, give according to that. So so giving is in proportion to what you have. In verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. Isn't that so true? Is If you're in a place of abundance right now, God's blessed you to be able to supply the needs of others, but at some point in your life, you're going to be at the place where you're going to be in the receiving end. One of the things I think that's been really neat over the years is to be able to send money over to churches that have been hit by a natural disaster or send teams. We sent teams down to Louisiana. You know, we, we sent over some money with Haiti and, and different things that have happened over the years. And then here in Colorado Springs, we had our two wildfires and believers show up from all over the country to do what? To help us sift through the homes that had been burned down. A great example of the body of Christ rallying around each other. I really believe if there was a disaster that hit our community, there would be believers from other parts of the country, other parts of the world that would reach out. And so it's this beautiful caring for one another. There's an example from Exodus 16. It says, as it is written, he who's gathered much has nothing left over. And he he who has Gathered little has no lack going back to manna when God provided the manna for the day. And God's perspective of physical resources is it's just manna. It's just manna. The manna had to be gathered every day. It couldn't be carried over to the next day. We like to kind of hoard our resources thinking that we can make it last forever. But the reality of it is, it is manna that will be destroyed. So while you have it, invest it in the kingdom. Verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother who praises, is in the gospels throughout all the churches. So Titus has a brother accompanying him as he's taking this offering In verse 19, and not only that, but he who also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Paul shows good accountability with the money. He doesn't leave the resources with one person. In verse 20, avoiding this, that anyone who should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Financial integrity is something that we believe in as a church leadership here. And if you give to RMC, you've got open invitation to look at the books. We get audited, and then we get reviewed by an outside firm called Cape and Krause. It's God's money. We want to handle it with care. We want to handle it with accountability. And Paul's saying, look, I want you to give to this need, but here's the accountability. Titus has got a brother going with him, and it's gonna go to real needs. It's not just gonna go to a lavish gift. And we finish out from verse 22 to 24, and when we've sent with him our brother, whom we've often proved diligent in many things, but how much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner and my fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren... "...are inquired about, there are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ, therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and the boasting on your behalf." Isn't it wonderful for the church of Corinth that it can move from can kicking to giving? (laughs) You know, if you've been following through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they're getting spanked and spanked and spanked and spanked over sexual sin and disorder in the church and compromise. And finally in chapter 7, Paul's able to say, you know what guys, I've seen godly sorrow leading to repentance. Let's get on to good works. Now why don't you give? Give. You've been blessed financially, why don't you give to the church of Jerusalem? So I think our text encourages us with two applications tonight, and the first is this. Godly sorrow leading to repentance. We're a happy society. We always want a happy ending. We want to put a smiley face on everything, including our texts, right? But sometimes we need to allow the Holy Spirit to bring godly sorrow into our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus told us. What does that mean? To get spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. To allow God to show us some things about ourselves that we don't want to see. And as we come to the communion table tonight, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, not in condemnation. Not in condemnation, but to look to Jesus, to look to the cross, the author and the finisher of our faith. And as the Holy Spirit exposes things, to repent, to turn from those things, receive God's grace, his forgiveness, and get up, and keep walking with the Lord, to respond the way David did, to respond the way that Peter did, and then also in this area of giving, to say, Jesus, you have been so gracious. You left your place of riches to come to poverty, so that I may be your son. I may be your daughter. How would you want me to grow in giving? How would you want me to abound in giving? Let's stand together, and let's pray. Father, as we come and we take some time at the communion table tonight, would you bless this time of fellowship? Jesus, we want to draw near to you. If there's areas of our lives where you need to reveal sin, Lord, would we be open to that? Would there be godly sorrow leading to repentance? Would you protect us from that worldly sorrow that leads to death? God, would you protect our hearts from being stingy and controlling of resources, You've been so gracious to us and we want to live a life of being a blessing to others, of laying up our treasures in heaven. So would you apply that to us through the Holy Spirit? Would you minister to us in communion? In Jesus' name.